The views and opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of any entities they represent, including Olas Media. Olas Media. Media presents Nation State of Play. Welcome to the Nation State of Play podcast. I'm your host, Brian Miller. On each episode, we explore the political stories that are driving public policy in California. We explore these stories with political insiders, business leaders, journalists, and policymakers themselves to get below the surface of the headlines and show you the true forces shaping our nation's state. Well, thanks so much for listening today. We have a great guest, Larissa May, with Half the Story Project. Um, we're talking about social media addiction and specifically legislation that's pending in California and trying to do something about that. And we, we talked about this topic on the show before. This bill came pretty close to passing, actually, last year. Um, and I think there's some really important arguments that people need to hear about why it should pass this year. It's a topic that's important to every American, particularly parents. So hope you can uh, listen to this short conversation, but a really important conversation. So stay with us. Larissa May with Half the Story Project coming right up. American democracy is good, but we can make it better. The National Association of Nonpartisan Reformers includes organizations across the country that are working right now to build a better democracy by opening primaries, implementing safe, secure voting systems, reducing corruption, and increasing transparency. Listen to our weekly podcast, How to Win Friends and Save the Republic, to hear the latest updates from the democracy reform space. Subscribe and learn more about us at nonpartisanreformers.org. Welcome back to the Nation State of Play podcast. Larissa, thanks so much for being on the show today. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you for hosting me for this very critical topic. It really is. Um, you know, I wanted to start with actually asking you where the organization's name comes from, because, because I think it's provocative. So yeah, how'd you, how'd you come up with the name? So half the story comes from the idea that social media is only half of the story. And what we put out on social media divides us more than it does connect us. And it really came out of my own experience as a young digital native trying to understand my role in the digital world and and really thinking about and better understanding how these digital devices and platforms actually impacted my mental health because I was only seeing one side of the story. But it goes beyond that. It really also speaks to the algorithms and the the subcultures and really just uh, the worlds that social media create for us um, and and how important it is to really break through the echo chambers that the algorithms create, which I think also kind of leads into why we are here today, which is to talk about a bill that ultimately will create a, create accountability so that we can help break some of these cycles. Yeah. And, and let's, let's do that. If you don't mind, you've been really brave talking about your personal story, including yeah. your legislative testimony. And I, I'd, I'd love to ask you if you'd be comfortable sharing some of that, because I think it says a lot about the depth of this topic and why it's so important. Yeah. So uh, I actually have been a digital well-being activist for seven years. So I, I'm really happy that we're having this conversation because not and not a very long time ago, people didn't really even believe that technology had emotional implications because we they were really so mesmerized by the innovation piece of it. 
And what we've seen over the last couple of years and really starting with my own story, this is something that young people and humanity has really started to question. Like, what is the opportunity cost of these devices, of the speed, of OpenAI, of Web3? And I faced that when I was 21 years old. So I got Instagram for the first time when I was 18, which actually was pretty late in the game compared to most kids in the modern world. So what's interesting about my experience is that I remembered a life without social media, um, but I also grew up in it. And during one of the most pivotal points of my life, when I was in college, I downloaded it. And when I was a sophomore in college, I was using social media 10 to 12 hours a day. I was struggling with an eating disorder. Uh, depression, anxiety. And during that time, I remember I was like a moth to a flame. Ever since I downloaded social media, my brain was never the same. It was like when I was feeling more sensitive, um, I was never really able to regulate my emotions the same way I was before. And social media played a role in that. And it became so bad that I was actually, I remember when I was 21, sitting in my dorm room on my bed and opening up my phone. And there are really two sides to my life. One was my love for fashion. And I had a fashion blog. And the other was the fact that I was suicidal. I was looking at depression content and I was looking at photos of women who were thin and thinner than I was that and women that I would never look like. And my algorithm and the content that kept serving me was showing me photos of the women that were either in recovery from eating disorders or that were thin fitness influencers that I would never be like. And so I wound up really hitting a rock bottom. I mean, the the list goes on and on of, I think, all the things I was really facing. But at its core, I was dealing with an eating disorder. I was dealing with chronic depression, which really neither of them were treated until that point. And social media's role in that story was really a magnifying glass. It made things harder. It made my emotions more intense. And quite honestly, it also was a shield between me, my emotions and the world. And people didn't really understand what was going on because I was only sharing half of my story. And when I hit rock bottom my RA on my college campus came into my room and she was like, the girl that we see online is not the girl that's sitting in this room. And you know, I know that you're experiencing suicidal ideation, which I was. And she took me, she was in pre-med to the psychological care center on campus. And I was very lucky. And I think I always start by saying, I'm doing this work because I'm alive today. And unfortunately, the second leading cause of death for young people in the United States is suicide. And when you look at the rates of anxiety and depression and, and suicide attempts amongst young women, next to the growth of zero to a billion Instagram users, the correlation in the growth looks almost the same. And I've, I'm not, I'm not, I, I don't think that lives can be looked at as statistics necessarily, because you can't really put a value on a life. But what I realized in that period was as a young person navigating digital technologies alongside a mental illness. So again, I was at the worst case scenario. I was sitting in the doctor's office and they gave me antidepressants. They asked me about drugs and sex and all of the things that we would indulge in as, as college students. And I wasn't really one. I never was into drugs, but the drug that I was into was the one that was in my pocket and the one that I was spending 10 to 12 hours a day on. So I really took the matters into my own hands because even though I left and started taking my antidepressants and my baseline mood was better just because my chemicals were off, I was still struggling with comparison. And I was still, my algorithm was built for the girl that was broken and sick. And it was really preying on that. And so 
I started half the story when I was like, this is pretty screwed up and I need to either be a part of the solution or I need to get off this. And so I printed a bunch of stickers that said half the story and gave them to students on campus and really started by building a grassroots movement of young people around the world. And now we've really become one of the leading youth-led nonprofits at the intersection of education, research, and advocacy to give the next generation the tools that they need to be empowered to take back control of technology and their own emotional regulation. Amazing story. And, um, Really glad that you've been able to tee this up here in Sacramento and other capitals. So I want to ask you about the legislation. Let me start by asking you, how do you define addiction? Because I know that's what the legislation's focus on, and we'll, we'll get into it. But how, how do you actually define that term? Well, I mean, I think that that's a really interesting question. And I think that's the <clears throat> question that... And, and it's hard to kind of... Um, I think there's like a lot of different ways to think about what addiction can mean depending on what type of individual you are. There are different drugs from alcohol to prescriptions to heroin or opioids. But ultimately, um, you know, a person with an addiction and the way that I think about it is that when we engage in a behavior and our brain ultimately receives a reward that encourages us to keep repeating that activity, although it is actually detrimental to us. And that part of our brain that gives us that reward and reinforcement is the dopamine, the neurotransmitter dopamine. And that is the dopamine hit and the dopamine cycle that the algorithms are using to prey on the limbic systems of young minds. So yeah. that's how I define addiction. Um, but you know, when you think about social media, and I'm just going to be honest because I've heard all sides of the story I think that there are some arguments from people that social media addiction does exist and that it doesn't. And um, the data tells us and the science tells us when you look at young people's brains, the way that these devices have been created and the way that young brains react to this, especially during because the frontal lobes have not been fully developed, pretty much mimics the same type of addiction that one would have to a drug or smoking the same areas of their brain light up. So um, you know, I, I just would like to say that, yes, I do believe in social media addiction because I lived that experience, uh, and I definitely have an addictive personality and I know that about myself, but you know, there are a lot of varying thoughts around this. And, um, I think one of the hardest parts about mental health, which I would also bring up in this argument is that it's, it's very, the brain is the, the one organ, even though one in four Americans struggles with a mental illness, the brain is the, is the organ that is least looked at from an imaging perspective in modern medicine. And so a lot of mental illness and conditions tend to seem more subjective than objectives. Uh, but I really believe that, you know, mental illness and mental health is objective. And until we start looking at our, bra our brains, like our bodies, it's going to be impossible to, you know, it's going to be impossible to make change. And so, you know, social media addiction, every time you get a like, every time you open your phone, every time you go, get on a snap streak, that's the part of the young individual's mind uh, that is ignited and is telling that them that this feels good. But the truth is, it's only in the moment. It's not the long term. And that is what's creating these social media addictions because the platforms are designed to prey on these especially vulnerable minds to keep them coming back. Yeah. I mean, it, 
I want to tease out the Twitter example here because a lot of the listeners here spend a lot of time on political Twitter. And I think the dopamine point you've raised is really at the heart of all this. Um, so, you know, I've read, I read this uh, interesting study that basically said, you know, somebody goes and tweets something outrageous on Twitter, they get a certain amount of shares, likes, uh, uh, interactions, and they get a certain amount of dopamine. Yeah. But what happens over time is your, your baseline dopamine level is actually adjusting to to be higher and so to and so to get what you perceive as a hit and and increase above your baseline you need more and more likes more and more interactions and the problem with that on twitter and there's probably different versions of this on different programs is that just means you have to be more outrageous to get more interactions and i think that's it feels like that's one of the reasons like twitter is so just in the sewer in terms of what goes on because to get that dopamine hit you just you've gotta be crazier and crazier you have to be provocative yeah you have to and and that's you know one of the big issues right now with misinformation and how information is spreading because we have moved from a culture that prioritizes truth and accuracy into a culture that is incentivized by attention and is incentivized by engagement. And the way that truth is engagement engaged with versus comedy or um, you know, provocative content is very often not equal. And that's why, because truth is it, it's it's not as interesting to people. Right. And now we don't know what's true from what's not. And young people are going on social media to self-diagnose themselves. They are, you know, there's all these terms that are being thrown around and used, which is, you know, also harmful in its in its own right. But I think that, you know, what your your example about Twitter is really <clears throat> similar to TikTok. Um, and that young people now, we kind of we call it shock culture. Social media rewards shock. It rewards the tide challenge. It rewards the choking challenge, which when I was at the Capitol working on COSA, there was a group of parents sitting at the table. One of them had a 10-year-old daughter who died from the choking challenge on TikTok because she went into another room to do the challenge. That is the reality that young people are facing. And that is the reality that we need to change. All right. Well, let's let's talk about the bills. So how, how does the bill try to change that? So first let me, I, I think it, this is, there's a couple things that I want to share before we go into the social media duty to children act that really paint the picture of why this is so important. So first and foremost, the average American, this is average, average American teen. There was a study done by common sense media last year is spending seven and a half hours a day behind their device. That's average over the span of their life. That's a third of their life, which is 30 years. So Think about this. Your kids and your grandchildren are basically going to spend 30 years of their lives behind a device that has not been regulated virtually since it was created. So the other piece of this is that kids that are struggling with mental illness are more likely to experience casualties, I believe, from social media just because of the way that the algorithms are built. There was a recent report that came out in the last week, and this has been really going viral um, on social media by the Center for Countering Digital Hate. And what it really found, what it did is it looked at algorithms amongst 13-year-olds in the US, UK, Australia, and Canada. And what they found is that harmful content is served every 39 seconds. Suicide content is served within two to six minutes, within 2.6 minutes. Suicide content is served within 2.6 minutes and eating disorder content is served within eight minutes. So that is what 
and studying 13 year olds globally, the, the amount of time it's taking for them to be exposed to the type of content that can start as curiosity and end in them taking their own life. So the social media duty uh, platform, the duty. Okay. So this year we're reintroducing the social media duty to children act. And this will ultimately be the first bill that creates accountability from an infrastructure and design perspective. Right now, social media platforms are designed to hook, to addict, and to continue to serve that content to underdeveloped minds. So what does that actually look like? Well, first and foremost, um, if a young person, if there's a casualty, and if the social media platforms do not follow what this bill passes, it will actually give the district attorney the power to review a number of cases within the district and actually then pursue a case against the social platform. So it's really allowing us to put our trust in our city officials and to really take the cases that are going to have the most amount of impact for the majority of youth, because there's hundreds of millions of youth online that are harmed probably every single second. The, so what does accountability look like? And that's one of the biggest um, one of the biggest questions that Young, young people and parents and even people on the other side are asking. So right now, there is essentially no financial incentive to actually make sure that you're building platforms that support the development and emotional health of youth. We are facing the world's greatest mental health crisis in history for youth that we have ever seen. When you look at the fact that kids are spending more time online than anywhere else in the world, that basically means we're putting kids into a bunch of cars without seatbelts that have never been tested on the road. That is what the equivalent is right now on technology. Kids are going to sleep with the bully. They're addicted to the place that's killing them. We have more fentanyl overdoses happening where kids are getting drugs on social media. The list goes on and on. So what we're basically saying is, hey, social media platforms, you know, you have, and Facebook specifically, <laughs> you have an, a team of data scientists inside that are actually aware of what you're doing because there was a report that was published on it. So what we are going to say is not hinder innovation, encourage you to keep innovating, but when you innovate, ensure that when you launch something in the market using your team, that it is not going to be harmful for you. If you don't do that and it is harmful, you're going to be charged and you're going to be held accountable. If you do develop something and within last year, it was 30 days. This year, we're still editing the bill. So there could be changes. Within 30 days, you find out that it's harmful and you pull it. You're not going to be charged. And so what this really does is put the onus on the platform and actually has a financial incentive at the forefront for them to develop and continue innovating, but innovate with the emotional well-being at the forefront for their users. So that's what we're really looking at. And when we talk about what are the types of features that we're trying to remove for minors, it's the ones that are the most addictive, the snap streaks, the endless scrolling, um, all of the things that are keeping our kids hooked to these devices and preventing them from sleeping, preventing them from their academic achievements, their social intelligence, and even just their engagement with the world. So what is the operative language in the bill? I, I, I thought it was if they design something addictive, but, but it yeah. sounds like you're talking, is that, that's, that's the key trigger. Yeah. If it's addictive and, okay. and, and that's, you know, what, what, and, and Kim, feel free to jump in here, but um, yes. 
it's if it's addictive. Basically, right now, what they're doing is they're designing and actually most of the time doing research to make sure that it is addictive before putting it out <laughs> because that's what's creating that their bottom their bottom line. Um, but what this bill does is it actually ensures for minors, which are the most vulnerable, as I mentioned, to ensure that when they are innovating, it's not happening. Okay, so let me dwell for a minute on the enforcement provisions of the bill and how this would work. So the bill, as I understand it, would create a public right of action for prosecutors to bring claims. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. So not criminal liability. We're talking about civil liability by public prosecutors here. Yes. It's civil liability by public prosecutors and actually places a duty on the social media platforms to prevent their children from being addicts. Got it. And there's no private right of action under this bill. This is not like a boon for trial lawyers or anything like this. This is public prosecutors only. Public prosecutors. Gotcha. Okay. Um, Yeah, no, I I think that's really helpful uh, context. So if you could tell us what happened last year with the bill, because I know you made a lot of progress and quite get it over the finish line. Where, where did things get left off last year? Oh, wow. So first of all, we had zero no votes and the bill was silently killed in the appropriations committee. So that was a huge, actually in many ways it was, it was a big win for us. It created a global conversation. There've been a number of, of bills since introduced. And, and I believe that it was really the catalyst for a lot of, the legislation and conversation that continues to be at the forefront of digital well-being around the world. But now this year we want to come back and we want to introduce this and we want to get it over the line. California has been the leader in virtually every single cause. And we believe that as the state that is the home to many of the social networks, it should be the one that is is taking the steps necessarily necessary to create accountability because kids have they have systems in place for cars, for toys, for candy, for virtually anything they touch. But this is the place where they're spending all of their time and there's nothing. Yeah, thanks for saying that point about California. I mean, I've, I've said this before on the shows that the, these are by and large California companies. I think we have a special duty to tackle this in California. And if we don't, it'll be tackled for us in Washington against um, certainly one of our biggest industries, if not our biggest industry. And, you know, I, I one of the things that's strange about tech is maybe it's not strange, but I think it sort of forgets history is they, they essentially have argued against any regulation whatsoever and been fairly successfully to, to their credit done it so far. I, I've seen this issue though come up in other sectors where eventually the industry says, you know what, we're going to be regulated eventually. Might as well be a part of the process, do it on our own terms, come to the table and suggest something we can live with. Have you seen any evidence of that sort of mentality from tech or is their approach hands off? We're, we're just not agreeing to anything. Well, there is um, a company called TechNet, which really represents all of the big tech companies. And I think there are some tech players that want to come to the table and, and build build more empathetic designs and experiences. I think there are companies, and granted, this does not apply to every single company. It's like, if you have over $100 million in revenue, this this applies to you. So look, I think right now, there are always advocates within tech platforms that want to create more sustainable practices. A lot of people that you talk to that work in tech don't actually let their own children on these platforms. 
the entities as, as, a, as a whole in a capitalist society are really here to serve one group of individuals and that's their shareholders. And I think that we forget that a lot of times in these conversations of what is the ideal versus the real. And I think the way that I think it's, you know, it, no one's going to be excited to lose hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue, no CEO, whether it's tech or not. And that's what this is really coming down to is humanity versus profit. But I think we need to start looking at this crisis similar to the way that we're looking at the environmental crisis and that companies are having to invest more in sustainable practices and products for their businesses, sometimes at a loss to them because it's better for the world and the environment. I think the same thing goes here. We're going to have to start taking cuts to our profits to ensure that there are less kids that are becoming addicted and dying and that I'm not sitting at a table with moms holding photos of their kids who have all died under the age of 15. Is Tech's argument that they cannot do what you're asking them to do as a practical matter or is that they shouldn't be required to do it? Well, I think that they're both really important questions. Um, when it comes down to algorithm design and experiences, algorithms can be a bit of a like AI, right? Technology is a reflection of humanity. I think in a lot of ways, they can 100% control certain features and things that they create. So it's not really about that. It really comes down to profit. It's profit. That's what it's about, especially now. And I think we just saw there were hundreds of thousands of tech layoffs last year. So I think there's probably going to be even more resistance than ever, just given the economic climate and what tech companies are up against. And that's just the reality of what we're at. And I think we can't we can't ignore the economic climate that we're living in and also that this bill isn't really about preserving wealth. It's about preserving humanity. Yeah, really well said. Um, what's going on in other states on this topic? Um, has, has anybody passed something similar to what you're asking for in California? Um, no. <laughs> so right now, most of the bills that have been, that are sort of on the table, I mean, California passed the Privacy Act, but I think the the big thing we need to share with the world is that privacy and algorithm design are two completely different things. Of course, privacy is a non-negotiable. Kids should be, I mean, kids should be protected, period. Um, but protecting kids and their privacy is not going to change the fact that these algorithms are manipulating their young minds from the start. And we need to actually make infrastructure changes, not just privacy changes, in order to see a real shift in the emotional well-being of the next generation. So that's sort of my, um, you know, what I have to say about that. Um, I actually just spent a number, a, a bit of time at the Capitol working on COSA, the Kids Online Safety Act, which is actually pretty similar to this, except for it doesn't use addiction as really the key term. It's more broadly uh, technology that's harmful, harmful to kids. And I think this is just, I mean, it's crazy. And that's that, federal legislation. Sorry, that, federal sorry, legislation. Yeah. yeah, federal legislation. And Quite honestly, I know that mental health and social media, the U.S. Surgeon General came out last year and said that social media is playing a significant role in the mental health of young people in a negative way, and we need to do something about it. So, you know, the best way to do it is go to the top and go to the bottom. The top is federal legislation because protecting kids in California is not going to save the world. It's a step in the right direction, and that will ultimately, and why it's so important for us to pass this is because if we can pass this, then 
many other states will pass this. You know, we have Blumenthal, we have Marsha Blackburn in Tennessee that are trying to work on this at a federal level. And I think if California can make it through, then we have an even better case for a bill at a federal level to do this. And it's really, it's really wild because there's really only a a few key players that are contributing to this that can make one policy change or a few policy changes that can really protect, or at the very least, ensure that they're putting their best foot forward and their resources where their heart is to protect youth. And I think that that's what this is about is like, of course, it's not going to be perfect out of the gate because that perfect is just not a reality, but it's going to make sure that people are at least diverting their resources into the right places and not slashing teams that are working on wellness and mental health, especially given what we're facing right now. If you're a parent and you're listening to this, what's your advice to parents in navigating the digital world right now? And where can they find resources about this? So our organization is all about empowering parents, care, or I say caregivers, students, and educators. We have an educational program that uh, we've actually been bringing into a number of the Bay Area schools called Social Media U to really give kids the power they need to better understand how these tech platforms work and what it does and how they can break through those barriers to take care of their mental health. But I think as a parent, there's really three key things you need to know. One, Don't create shame and negativity around social media. It can be a really powerful place and could even save your child's life if they're using it the right way. The more shame you create, the less likely they're going to be to talk to you about it. The second thing is start the conversation about social media with your own personal experience and acknowledgement. A lot of times, like anything, as parents, you're probably inquiring about this because you don't have a great relationship with tech either. And it's important to be vulnerable with your kids if you expect them to open up. And then the third piece is make digital wellness fun and gamify the experience. You know, tell them, try to get them to calculate how much money they think the platforms are making off of their time and, you know, what that could lead up to over a year or, or, you know, a lifetime of digital tech. Um, And also, you know, make it fun. Try to have screen-free holiday challenges or weekend challenges where the first person to pull out their phone at dinner is stuck doing the dishes. And parents, you know, parents will also be responsible for that too. So, I think we just have to take the stigma away and make it more fun and interesting and engaging um, so that young people can can ultimately just connect more with this topic and in a way that doesn't feel scary and doesn't feel negative. If people want to find out more about those topics or get involved with your organization, read more about your work, where should they go? They can go to uh, www.halfthestoryproject.com. Or you can find us online at Half the Story anywhere. And we have tips pretty much anywhere that you need them. Thanks so much for being on the show. Great to have you. Hugely important topic. And look forward to hearing more about the progress you hopefully make this legislative session. So thanks for what you're doing. Thank you. We invite you to share story ideas, comments, and questions. Find us at NeptuneOps.com or on Twitter at, at NationStateOfP1. Again, that's at NationStateOfP and then the number one. Follow us and subscribe to listen to all of our episodes as we continue to explore the inside stories driving California policy. Thank you for listening to the Nation's State of Play podcast powered by Neptune Ops. Olas Media.